Welcome to Blockstream Talk. It's been a wild couple of weeks in Bitcoin market, so who better to talk to for some perspective than Blockstream CEO and co-founder, Dr. Adam Back. In this conversation, Adam and I discuss what happened to markets this week, what's wrong with DeFi, how Tether is different from UST, and what are the lessons we can learn from Luna. If you find this conversation useful, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Adam, good to see you. Thanks for doing this. Good to see you. We're back again. So soon. <laughs> yeah, that didn't take long. Yeah, uh, exciting, exciting markets the last couple of weeks here. Yeah, lots of confusion as usual. So I think maybe it would be helpful to start to do a quick rundown of kind of what's happened over the last couple of weeks and maybe talk about some of the key constituents of the Terra ecosystem as well, just so people are clear and we're starting on um, a firm base. So I think basically what happened was Terra US dollar, which is seen, I guess, by some people as an up and coming stable coin, went from a market cap of something like 20 or 30 billion to low single digit billion in the pace of about a week. Um, over the same period, uh, its, its token Luna, which I guess is the native token for their ecosystem, went from about $80 to less than one cent. And since then, it looks like Luna has been pulled off a bunch of major exchanges. And, and this kind of came on my radar, I guess, maybe in March, I started looking at this and I actually didn't realize how much Bitcoin they bought. I thought they had about 40,000 Bitcoin, but it looks like their their fund acquired, according to Elliptic, acquired more than 80,000 Bitcoin, which putting it in perspective, that's almost two times as much Bitcoin as Tesla has on their balance sheet. So it's proper numbers. And then I guess what happened was they were forced to dump that Bitcoin to maintain their stablecoin. I think that's theoretically what was supposed to happen. I think some of it went to market makers and we're not entirely sure where all that Bitcoin went yet. So I think that still has to play out. And then in terms of their ecosystem, as I understand it, there's two main parts. There's Luna, their native token, and then there's UST, not to be confused with USDT, Terra USD, which is supposed to be a decentralized algo-based stablecoin. And I guess the primary mechanism here was pegging it to $1. So if Terra traded below $1, then you could swap it for $1 of Luna. And if Terra traded above $1, then you could you could do the opposite. So I think that's kind of a summary of what happened and, and kind of how their mechanism uh, worked. Is, is that anything to add on that, Adam? Or is that kind of, you agree with that? That's uh, correct. I mean, and I, and I had a similar timeline myself, you know, I uh, there are lots and lots of DeFi related quasi Ponzi like things with probably unsustainable rates and so forth. So I don't really track them too much, but I started paying attention when some Bitcoin enthusiasts were tweeting enthusiastically that Terra had, well, Terra Money, whatever, whatever the, uh, the organization is called, let's call it Terra Limited, um, was, was buying. Bitcoin in large quantities into, into the, you know, at so many per week, so many per day, heading up towards yep. the 80,000 that you mentioned. I think the other thing worth saying is apparently the, uh, I mean, we were, I was just looking at some basic stats um, over the weekend, and um, apparently the lunar market cap, <clears throat> which is a kind of shares in Terra Limited, if you like, um, went up to almost 40 billion. And so the sort of price pullback for Luna holders after this uh, collapse was a million, uh, yeah, a million fold, I think. Um, 
So, so if you if you were, you know, holding, um, I guess, what uh, $10,000 of a Luna, to put it in perspective, you would now have one cent or something. Now, of course, you know, <laughs> people are speculating on the bottom, trying to buy the dead cat bounce. It's getting delisted. People are trading leverage. So that's all highly dangerous. And it's it's presumably pretty dead at this point, reputationally. And in terms of, uh, there was talk at one point of the Luna, sorry, the uh, Luna Foundation, I guess it's called, um, trying to find additional investors. Uh, structurally, in terms of how it was bootstrapped, apparently, because I started asking questions just, just to understand in March when I sort of noticed, noticed them buying Bitcoin and people were enthusiastic about that, you know, yay, another institutional buyout. I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, are these guys idiots buying Bitcoin and they'll be forced to sell them all at once? And um, so I wanted to, so I asked questions, you know, just basic due diligence questions like, well, what, are you, what, are you, what kind of collateral are you using to buy the Bitcoin? And their answer was, well, we had 1.2 billion of um, it of VC money, basically, so crypto fund money, I guess. People, VC, mostly VCs who are, you know, investing in the crypto space, I guess, right? And they were hoping that that would grow to, I think, three billion of VC money. It wasn't completely clear to me how much was there, but at least there was some money there. But nevertheless, the question remained, you know. Um, are are you mostly collateralizing sort of with shares in the thing itself, like shares in the stablecoin management company? And evidently they were. I think uh, at peak, the Bitcoin collateral was maybe 10%-ish of the overall collateral, and the rest of the collateral was Luna uh, tokens or shares. So, um, and and... And my general question was, um, you know, as if if there's a loss of confidence and a price of Luna falls, you'll be forced to sell more and more of it. And the same with Bitcoin, right? So I guess people may not be familiar with the risks of leverage uh, when you're using the using as collateral the thing you're buying itself, right? So you get this effect with um, Bitcoin collateralized perpetual futures. So the uh, on a number of exchanges like BitMEX, Deribit, the collateral is Bitcoin itself. And so the problem there is if if you buy, you know, Bitcoin at forty thousand dollars, and you buy you use you know use some Bitcoin as collateral, and the price falls, your problem is double. Hence the quadratic rate, which is the price has fallen. But also the value of a collateral has fallen correspondingly, so you're kind of one times longer than on a petrol future platform like Bitfinex is actually US dollar or tether tether backed, uh, tether collateralized. So your collateral is not eroding. Um, so that that has a kind of risk property that in a falling market things escalate very quickly. It, it drops precipitously, and it. In the event, that's actually what happened with Luna. 
Yeah. So the, the point of your tweet, I think also was there's a problem with market cap too, right? Like I noticed this with Ripple and XRP back in kind of 2016, 2017, is that they had this huge market cap, but a huge amount of that was escrowed away. So it made it look, and this happens repeatedly with a lot of these smaller coins and tokens, is it looks like it's a lot bigger than it is. And then when you try and trade it, there's no volume there. So that's kind of the a part of the problem as well, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think... Um... You know, of course, they had uh, a white paper, as all uh, coins and tokens and ICOs do. And um, the the general mistake is to assume that prices are continuous and that there's unlimited liquidity, neither of which is true in a distressed situation. Um, and so they even had like a an academic paper written by somebody with some academic credentials, you know, um, but evidently, you know, whoever wrote that was not kind of a markets guy to realize the reality of it. And, you know, of course, if, even if there is liquidity, you know, while the thing is growing, that doesn't mean there'll be liquidity while it's shrinking because once confidence is lost, everybody heads to the door and there are no, you know, there are very few buyers. It's uh, like a bank run. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the other interesting data point is because of the mechanism where the, I think you described it at the outset here, but if the Terra dollar, I'll call it that rather than their other phrasing because it's confusing for uh, Tether. <laughs> so the, the Terra dollar, um, if it falls below par, the user is able to redeem it from a, you know, a, a somewhat decentralized bot uh, for a dollar's worth of uh, Luna, and they create the Luna at that moment. So it's sort of inflating away the supply. So it's it's a detriment of all Luna holders basically because they're creating more and more supply. So, and and what happened was a massive explosion of um terra sorry of luna luna coins so it, i think it went from like yeah i wrote this down here so i think 35 was it 350 um i think it went into the trillions now didn't it yeah but it, it started at like in in the tens of millions and it ended up at 6.5 trillion it's probably more since then because it's probably still actually i think they cut cut it off finally because it got out of control but yeah so it it, it basically diluted people and that, that was a big part of how um you know the price fell so precipitously so an analogy is is that you know let's imagine that it's that it's a bank and it doesn't have you know a central bank backing and if if it runs short of money it will redeem by diluting its own stock and giving you a dollar's worth of stock for each dollar you deposit and you know in a normal band of a bit of up and down you know a bit of adoption and a bit of redemptions that could work but once it's once the confidence is lost of course they're going to dilute their their bank stock and once the you know, the market cap of the bank falls below the market cap of the dollars in circulation, then that becomes, you know, then becomes obvious to everybody that, that this is not going to work. And, uh, you know, the, the last one out is going to lose their shirt. 
and starts a stampede and that just escalates it. Yeah. And so as this thing blew up, we started to see a lot of other news around stable coins. So how do you think the UST blow up spilled over into other stable coins like Tether? Um, well, I, th- I think, you know, the level of um, the sort of information asymmetry is pretty extreme in these markets. So in in conventional markets, public market stocks, there are you know, large funds like pension funds that have positions. There are professional analysts who write analyst reports. There's a cash flow, there's a balance sheet, there are quarterly audited reports, and there are, you know, accounting standards and independent uh, big four audits and so forth. So if if a stock is low and becomes, uh, you know, analyst recommended, or if the fund managers think that below that price it's a buy, They'll step in and buy it, um, but in the crypto space, I think there are many more kind of uh, retail traders, and there's much more confusion because it's it's complicated. The information is not necessarily accurate, and so you'll get silly things like people um, realizing that stable coins could be risky and selling all of the stable coins for dollars or Bitcoin or something, uh, regardless in a short period of time, or pulling out of other DeFi platforms, realizing that DeFi platforms carry risk. Because I think, fortunately, you know, some of the people that put money into into the Terra were looking for this 20% yield. And mm. the fact that it's advertised as stable as a kind of low risk thing, right? And and, and obviously that backfired. So, and, and I think the other factor, obviously, is that for Terra particularly, is that the Terra the ticker for the Terra US dollar is UST and the ticker for Tether US dollars is USDT. And it's almost suspicious like the, you know, the Terra uh, founders thought that they would, because, because Tether is the biggest stable coin, it's the sort of highest reputation in a way, the most, by far the most widely used in terms of trading volume. Well, like a factor of 10 as compared to everybody else combined, um, there was a kind of financial incentive for them to imitate it. And so by calling it UST, they could maybe create some confusion with USDT. And in some contexts on some platforms, USDT is abbreviated to UST as well. So it's actually like a ticker collision, literally, in some contexts. So that's, that's the kind of misleading branding, in a sense. So in any case, um, it seemed to cause confusion where some people were selling Tether and uh, pushed the in-exchange price. There there are sort of markets between uh, Tether and dollars and Circle and dollars and so forth, and Gemini and dollars. Um, And then there is a, a redemption mechanism where you can create an account with Tether, the company, deposit Tether and take out a wire transfer the 10 basis points fee if you have enough volume like there's a minimum yeah. fee of a thousand dollars so to get your 10 basis points you need to move a million dollars and for most people obviously that's a lot of money and way out of reach so they don't you know they don't create a teller account because the minimums are too large for them and they will actually just sell it on a market and uh the the market's you know, I think that that was the source of confusion, even of some mainstream financial media, 
where they incorrectly asserted that Tether also broke its peg, which it you know absolutely just simply didn't on a factual basis. Um, and so I guess they just, uh, you know, have never traded on crypto exchanges. I, th- I think a lot of journalists are actually precluded from owning Bitcoin, strangely. Um, so they probably don't know how it works, but effectively they're, you know, on any, on most of the exchanges, they have, you know, one or two or more stable coins and US dollars or other fiat currencies and a market. And there will be reasons. So it's just a supply and demand, right? And so it's an obvious arbitrage as well, because, you know, if you've, if you've got liquidity and you're not in a hurry and it goes, you know, and you're, you're holding tether and it goes below par and it will do that all the time, you know, it will be 10, 20 basis points below par it, on some part of the day and it will be 10 or 20 basis points above par other parts. And there, there are people and bots that just arbitrage that. And so they're providing liquidity to people who have a time preference, like they want tether quickly because they see Bitcoin at a slightly lower price on another, on another exchange, or they want dollars quickly because they're coming into the exchange and they want to, you know, access a dollar market, which is cheaper for Bitcoin than another exchange or something like that. So you'll just have, you know, if you think about two exchanges, one where the, there are more retail buyers, one where there are more, you know, funds and whale traders, they can have different sentiment balances. And so the price will yeah. be higher on one. And so, you know, if you look at the tether markets on those two platforms, one will be above par and one will be below par because of the move, you know, because of the demand until that price normalizes and then it will go back. So, you know, of course, on this particular moment, after the terror has imploded, you know, presumably there are tether, terror, tether and terror US dollars and other assets coming out of DeFi, landing on exchanges, getting converted. People are confused and anxious about anything that says DeFi or stablecoin in its name. So, you know, they cause they cause the um, the market price to fall more than ten or twenty basis points, like towards one or two hundred basis points, and I think briefly like four fifty basis points below, which is a lot. And um, you know, of course, underinformed people looking at that see it, see it dropping by two hundred basis points, and they hit panic sell, right? And the mainstream media is not helping because now they're saying, you know, they're falsely reporting and then people sell on a, on a confusion, right? Now, all yeah. that really did was hand free profit to people who were, had liquidity, were able to arbitrage it. It's also possible to um, play that market with leverage. There are uh, Terra perpetual futures. So you could, you know, 10x long that and make more money still. Yeah, I think also if you've got a little bit of experience under your belt, I think for a lot of people, this was probably their first rodeo. Um, so to see a wobble in Tether and to see something kind of big in the eco, the, like the broader crypto digital asset ecosystem um, blow up, it's 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 probably pretty panic inspiring. But I think if you've had, um, you know, you've been through many cycles, so I think you've seen variations of this story a couple of times. Um, so that's a, another different kind of asymmetry as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the other factor here is with um the rise and then you know rapid fall of terror is that's unprecedented i think i've never seen anything come up so quick and blow up so quick <laughs> i don't think because it's because it's a confidence thing a lot of naive investors and you know some of it is not uh transparent yet 
And some of it may not become transparent for years even. We'll see how it plays out. It's still a moving story. But um, I think one part of it was the yield guarantee. So apparently Tether is also a network, I presume a clone of Ethereum or something like that. And um, they had their own yield uh, product where people could borrow and lend. And the lending, sorry, the, you know, the um, lending to it was artificially increased. So I saw estimates that the fair market lending rate to borrow from this anchor protocol would be like six and a half percent. Nevertheless, it was paying 20 percent or 19 and a half percent, basically because the Terra company or investors or ecosystem was intentionally subsidizing the interest rate. So they had put extra capital into a pool for the anchor protocol to inflate the interest rate. So, you know, what does that do? Well, it gives people an incentive if, if they believe that this is secure, that the interest rates, you know, either, either they, they don't understand, they think those interest rates are normal or they, um, they can they're a bit they're a bit more detail oriented and they see that there's a pool of capital so that it will at least pay those interest rates for a while longer. And I think that that pool of capital got reloaded as well. So it showed a commitment from people in the ecosystem or in the foundation to to increase, you know, to keep keep that discount going. Um, and of course it also acts as a draw to pull investors in. You know, if you pay an unsustainable interest rate, it's kind of like you know, rate teasers, uh, banks will do that, and other interest-providing institutions will provide teaser rates uh, as to try and pull customers in, and then the you know the rates will drop, and they'll offer new products with teaser rates, and it's just a regular cycle. Um, and so, you know, effectively, we're doing that, and so that, and and presumably, some of that money, you know, it's ambiguous to me where that money came from. If that was some of the VC original money that was invested. Or if it came from lunar price appreciation of the uh, lunar foundation itself, because presumably it owned a big chunk of lunar, um, and so in in a way that was a bit Ponzi-like because you're sort of taking money from new investors and giving it to previous investors as an artificially high yield, and that that is actually classic Ponzi. But I would say for balance that you know teaser rates are an established thing that you know new financial uh, new new bank products use frequently. And a lot of startups will actually do right to you know to offer a good deal to get to get noticed to get customers or you know even even mobile phone manufacturers they'll but kind of like a lost leader right yeah effectively to get but but the the punchline is that you know ultimately there should be a sustainable product when you let it you know if you if you amass enough users so that it bootstraps a market and then you let the rates fall to market rates that it should be sustainable and and the problem here is it's um you know it's a bit like a housing bubble there's there's a huge amount of leverage implied and so you know as soon as the rates change the whole thing collapses spectacularly also you've got a lot of competition in this kind of lending space within DeFi, and your clients are not sticky at all so they need to compete on these rates as well so i think it's hard for them to offer a very high rate and then go back to something that's less competitive because there's no cost for your users to switch to like platform B that's doing the exact same thing. Um, 
Right. You know, so I think I think that's kind of a tricky thing to navigate for them as well if they're trying to do this in good faith. Yeah. I mean, I think you do that that's true and it, it's a kind of race to the bottom, so you know, I saw that Tron has kind of made a clone of uh, Justin Sun from uh, Tron another Let thing. me correct you, his his excellency Justin Sun, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> wherever he got that from. I wasn't paying attention to that. But I, I did I did see his new Twitter handle. So, um Anyway, he's he's now offering I don't know like forty percent APR with a with a clone of uh, this whole Terra Anchor protocol. So it's literally just a copy, um, but even more unsustainable rates. And you know, I mean, I suppose in the context of this recent collapse, he has to offer a lot to get anybody to risk anything, right? Um, the other curious thing is that there was, you know, a an advertised attempt, so the Terra Foundation, Luna Foundation, um, spoke, you know, during during the start of the collapse about the concept that they were going to try and source additional institutional money um, to to amass enough firepower to stop it collapsing, and and of course there were some billions. I'm not sure exactly how many because it was unclear how much was. You know, actually raised as opposed to you know their hope to raise, um, but there was at least a billion or two of institutional money. So, you know, there might be a sunk cost element. You know, if if a particular fund was holding a lot of Luna still, um, they might have had an incentive to try and protect that investment. But evidently, it, it collapsed too fast for anybody to, you know, feel inclined to put good money after bad, effectively. So, so far, at least, yeah. they've failed to raise any more money. And, of course, now it's collapsed to such an extent that, I mean, it's difficult to imagine making anybody whole or, you know, or the brand being worth that much, right? Um, maybe it's almost a negative brand and the the management team is... You know, tainted. Yeah, by by the outcome. Could that have ended differently? Like, if they were able to have that redemption mechanism set? Because I didn't really understand how the Bitcoin was going to. How it didn't seem like they had a plan for how the Bitcoin was going to back the stablecoin, right? It just seemed that that part became completely discretionary. Especially, I guess, as you know, the shit hit the fan, and then they're just like winging it out to market makers. But do you think is there a way where it could have ended differently if they had a transparent? exchange mechanism i guess that would depend on the details but yeah so i think actually the fact that the that they had not implemented yet a way for the kind of arbitrage automated arbitrage mechanism to sell bitcoin or redeem yeah. uh terra usd for bitcoin actually maybe helped a bit because i think you know these uh, transparent trading bots are pretty easy for people to game because you know as somebody who is trying to trade against it you know what they've traded how much they've got in reserve and exactly what they're going to do in reaction to your market move and so you can just take the optimal move to um liquidate them right and that's effectively what happened whereas what happened with the bitcoin part the thing is we don't we don't know even to this day, like a number of days after the precipitous, precipitous drop, whether there are any Bitcoin left or whether even any Bitcoin was sold, yeah. all we know is that 
Bitcoin went to a centralized market maker with some discretion. And it may be that, you know, depending on how much discretion they had, they might have had the wisdom to not, you know, sell Bitcoin, like, you know, lose further money selling Bitcoin. So it could be that they still have some left. We just don't know. But I think that makes life harder for the person who is trying to sort of trade on the, um, you know, the negative sentiment that comes from the market thinking that a lot of Bitcoin will be sold, right? Because now, you know, people, some people may think, well, it's already sold it all. So like we don't care anymore, right? So then they probably have to close their short position because of that. Whereas if it had all been on market, all, all been transparent, they could have more effectively uh, known exactly when to close their short position. Yeah, it felt like there was a bit of a delayed reaction because 24 hours later, I thought, you know, at the time I thought that they only had 40,000 Bitcoin to sell. So I thought, okay, if this is what a 40,000 Bitcoin sell looks like in 24 hours, then this market is super resilient. I can't believe we're still above 30,000. And then, um, you know, two seconds later, it went <laughs> it went down to like 24 or something. You know, so there were, I think maybe it, maybe they were diddling around with the market makers and then they just finally let some go after that and, and, and whacked it again or maybe something. Like I think they seem to suffer from a case of oversharing in some cases. So I think also to flag the market that you're going to buy $10 billion Bitcoin, $10 billion worth of Bitcoin while you're actually buying is probably not a great idea either. Like, Right, exactly. Yeah, I think you'd have a disadvantage. I mean, as such, the bo- the bottom of the Bitcoin market is a, lo- is a little bit interesting in its own right because... You know, the, I think the bottom on Bitfinex was higher, you know, maybe 27-ish, 26 and a half. Uh, and yet um, on <clears throat> some other exchanges was lower. And I think that's because the... Um, you know, the makeup of the investors on the platform. Yeah. So it makes it extra risky to use leverage trading particularly or limit, like, stop orders on exchanges that have a tendency to uh, scam wick or flash crash below the fair market bottom. And so... um or, or exchanges that tend to crash under load, that's extremely dangerous as well. So people should be looking at that and taking notes and switching platforms or being more cautious about placing automated orders on exchanges with that tendency. Yeah. So I, I viewed a bottom as like more like 26, 27, 26 and a half. Um, but others are saying 25, but that's because they, they're looking at the price feed on exchange with uh, too big of a mix of people prone to panic sell basically and they pushed you know and it takes some time to arbitrage that yeah another thing that i noticed over the last couple of weeks was the velocity of stable coins too i think is another way to look at them because if you look back at tether if you look at stable coins war they've got a velocity number and its velocity for for tether is like 70 or 80 percent and it's way higher than anything else like the other stable coins are half that or you know maybe a fraction of that and I think that's a really interesting metric because I think it points to, you know, a key part of this trade uh, was, I think, swapping some Bitcoin for UST and taking that liquidity out of the market and then selling and being able to dominate volume and really bully price around. And I think in something that has a higher velocity, I think that probably means that there's more use cases 
and there's more of that stable coin in different users' hands. And I think it's harder to dominate the volume. So I think that's an that's an interesting thing and maybe points to Tether being more resilient than you know its peers. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly more liquidity in the yeah. on exchange markets. Um and I mean, of course, and in the uh, the redemption process, because it's actually dollar-based assets under it. Yeah. Whereas with Terra, you actually had the double problem, which is the the market liquidity was a lot worse, a lot much lower. I I believe that the contagion. I mean, because one risk with uh, stable coins and DeFi, sorry, with, with DeFi particularly, is that um, the there's a bit of recursion going on where people will you know, deposit assets into a yield platform like Anchor. And in some cases, they get tokens reflecting their, you know, the portion of the liquidity pool they own. And those tokens have their own value. So, you know, you'll say deposit $100 and get $80 worth of tokens out, assuming the token market keeps confidence. And then they'll take the tokens and they'll deposit them in another liquidity pool and they'll get you know and it'll just keep going so there's a kind of um murky high leverage through sort of contagion risk and recursion uh in those platforms and alan farrington wrote uh, an interesting article about that um it's called the only the strong will survive yeah. basically talking about the excessive <coughs> and recursive leverage in DeFi platforms so there is to my mind a risk of DeFi platform contagion. If you know enough confidence is lost in one of the large ones that people pull a lot of capital out of it, and then the the staking tokens lose value because it's a falling market in a you know because those ha- those don't have a fundamental value. It's just a kind of confidence value. And you know, with as there's a lot of leverage, it basically means things can get liquidated and force sold. Um, now, it seems like the situation with Terra, because it was paying an unsustainable rate, is actually um, contained mostly because, you know, obviously lots of retail users lost money, some funds lost money, the original investors lost money if they hadn't already cashed out, the, the VC investors, but most of the Terra was not widely used for you know, conventional stablecoin purposes are actually all staked into, almost all staked into the Anchor Protocol because it was offering an unrealistic return. Yeah, I think that its velocity, when I looked at it a couple of weeks ago, was like 5% and Tether's was like 70 or 80. So I think that's what that points to is staking. Right. So, So in a sense, the unsustainable rate meant that it was sticky. I mean, of course, it's not going to be highly liquid because... It, it's it's new and people don't have confidence and it doesn't have the you know the integrations and the and the traders confidence and they're not going to change pattern with something that works basically and i think the kind of traders that use um stable coins a lot are going to be a bit more savvy about you know risks and stuff right so the trading anyway so i think it you know it, it didn't have liquidity for trading but also, it didn't have a lot of um, recursion and um, contagion risk, so that the uh, the teaser rate actually discouraged, you know, onwards lending. 
if, if you like. So, so the, the Terra USD didn't infect that much, and and so kind of contained it. Yeah, it seems like coincidentally. Yeah, I, Apollo had this point too in your um, your Twitter Spaces chat with uh, Arnab and Samson and Gabor. Um, you know, I guess two things. The first one was that it's kind of all fun and games until you get up to 10, 20, 30 billion and you're, you know, you really need to have access to something that's that's got deep liquidity. Otherwise, you're going to have problems. And I guess also you become a massive honeypot for these kinds of, you know, people who are looking to to take up, take advantage of you. And then um, the other thing is that, that Paulo mentioned too was that you know what's the point of a stablecoin being backed by another stablecoin? I mean that just doesn't make any sense. If you're going to be seventy five percent backed by USDC, they're like, let's just cut out the middleman and yeah, <laughs> what's the point? Yeah, like what's why are you here? <laughs> a lot of people just want to you know buy Bitcoin and cold store it, and that's mostly what I do. I think that's a great idea. Don't leave your coins on exchange, etc. Right, but if you do some trading, which I also do with an allocation, and you run into problems with wire transfers. And so in 2013, uh, for a number of years, this is a little before Blockstream and then continuing afterwards, I was doing um, arbitrage, where at that time there, were, there was no stable coins. This is before Tether, which was the first stable coin. And the way you would do arbitrage is you would buy transfer to an exchange buy that, that had a cheaper price, you'd buy the Bitcoin, transfer them to another exchange, you sell them, you'd wire transfer the proceeds back to your bank, and then you complete the circle and send it back to the first exchange. And that whole loop, because there's three wire transfers involved, would take over a week. Yeah. And 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 like it's not just it take a week like you know if you don't do a wire transfer before the wire cut off like maybe 2 p.m or something it's not going to happen the same day even if it's supposed to happen the same day half the time it doesn't and sometimes they just lose your funds and you know you got to talk to them on the phone if you can even reach them on the phone and they have to trace it to see like where it got lost and then you know that'll take more days uh, apparently of course one bank i use it could take up to a month, though I never had that unfortunate experience myself. But that could be pretty bad as well. And um, of course, they don't—you know—they don't operate on weekends. And even if you're not doing arbitrage, this was quite bad for the Bitcoin market structure because at the time, you know, the price would fall just as a random news or you know just volatility, and it would take. You know, two or three days before people could get money on the exchange to buy the dip, and you see, it's very predictable. You could see it kind of like oh, the price is down. Two or three days, if you've got a liquidity buy, because in two or three days it'll be back up because the wires will hit the exchange and people will buy. And so, you know, that stablecoins uh, improved a lot of that, and Tether particularly pioneered the the space. And so, when people say, "Well, why why do you care about stablecoins? Just buy Bitcoin." Or that, you know, this this confused claim that Tether lost its peg, it's it's not that. It's the only reason people are using it. Well, the main reason people are using it is because bank transfers are just so so bad as a user experience and speed of transfer and so on. So that's that's why people are using it, and that's why people will pay a premium to swap, you know, wire transfer dollars for tethers. Uh, faster, and then they can you know, wait for the wires afterwards. 
because it's a sort of time is money market opportunity thing. Um, so you know the the whole space is uh, started by you know that problem. So you know if if uh, governments and policymakers and regulators are concerned about this, they just need to make banks that you know have a have a transfer process that can transfer large amounts of money in seconds or minutes and then it'll be fine i mean the uk particularly kind of quasi fixed this problem with um so-called faster payments and they they are limited to i think 20 maybe twenty-five thousand pounds but they happen in, in like a minute or so and but apparently it's all fake like really it settles in two days as before oh. but they reached an agreement to show the balance and allow onwards resale and absorb the risk of it going wrong behind the scenes. So can you double spend it? Um, <laughs> I mean, probably at the edges that might happen, but generally for the user's perspective, it appears to work. So you know, the banks just need to upgrade the technology so they can actually move final settled money in minutes instead of days. Well, that that's part of it. But I mean, I was surprised to hear that Bitcoin still has quite a bit, you know, from the bank's perspective, some of these correspondent banks, I think there's still Bitcoin stigma because I've heard of people who have their correspondent bank has denied the transaction. And this is from like regulated trading platforms. So I think there's still banks out there that don't want to interact with Bitcoin or the broader crypto industry at all. So I think that's another part of it too, is that not all banks will support this and will be problematic to different you know, levels. Whereas something like Tether is not only low volatility, it's low friction, which I think is part of the value proposition. If you get like a CBDC from, you know, FedCoin and it's low volatility, but it's high friction and they're all over what you can do with it, then I think that's not attractive. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it adds to the unreliability, which is apart from being unreliable 1970s tech, it's also got human, yeah. I mean, part of the reason it's unreliable is it's got human touch points where people are, you know, dealing with uh, these swift messages and things, right? And they have to manually approve them or maybe retype them. And, you know, there's random policy stuff in there. Like some, as, as you say, some banks don't like Bitcoin. And they won't be public about it either. You can't, you can't find that out and nobody will explain it to you. Yeah. I mean, I think some of it may be a side effect of scammers. So um, there are people who, I mean, just, just financial fraudsters, basically, that, that will try to convince people to send them money or impersonate a financial institution or a financial offer. And they, they sometimes manage to fool you know, retail investors without a lot of investor experience, investment experience. And so the banks kind of fraud departments and telephone support lines are clogged up with this stuff. And so, you know, I guess, unfortunately, you know, some of those scammers abuse crypto exchanges to, uh, to, to cash out. Right. And, uh, so, but, but I mean, there is, there is clearly still some overhang. Uh, The overhang is eroding too, though, because a lot of the big financial institutions on the, investment side are starting to offer you know bitcoin denominated accounts and bitcoin related financial products and futures and derivatives and things so it's it's got to meet in the middle at some point where 
you know, you're just losing business by uh, taking that approach in one part of the bank and not in others or something. Yeah, no, I think so. So you know, maybe we should uh, try and wrap it up here, but I kind of wanted to finish on, what do you think are some of the key lessons that we should take away from what happened um, with Luna? I think for me, one of the big ones would be positioning. I'm kind of surprised by how many sophisticated investors um, you know, lost their shirt in this thing. I'm, I'm just surprised that people allocated so heavily to this to, to, to this ecosystem. Um, so I think positioning is, is one of them. Know your limits and stay within it is a good, a good, uh, model to live by. What do you think are some of the lessons that people can take away from, from this fiasco? Yeah. I mean, I think unfortunately there's a bit of, um, perverse incentive, which it may not fully have, uh, reset or flushed out, which is that for the, fund investors and you know insiders if you like um they can potentially have already taken a profit out and actually contributed to the full by withdrawing liquidity from it uh, or market selling effectively um so while invest like professional investors and large investors can make money doing this they're going to be inclined to do it again so that's to say that just because something is risky, may not work, or is predict- predicted to not work, doesn't mean that people won't try to play the game. So, you know, a lot of the altcoin trading sector is basically a game of knowing participants who know it's going to, you know, collapse or be eclipsed, taken over by something else in a period of time. And they're just playing a timing game. I was like, well, I'll collect the yield until the yield pool is dry and the rates drop to market and then I'll switch to the next one and I'll keep an eye on, you know, uh, a lick on, on the sort of precipitous fall and get out before the next guy. And some of them succeed in doing that. Right. Or if they were early enough, they, they got out early and left some house money in there. So uh, probably some professionals even got burnt in this. So that will make them more cautious. Yeah, no, I think, I think that, um, that makes sense. And that's something that I've noticed as well is that, uh, you know, these things can still be very profitable for people if they can get their timing right. And I think I've known, you know, in, in, in Taiwan kind of China area, this Ponzi thing is, has been around for a long time. Like these, this is crypto is, is just the newest uh, iteration of this thing. And, and people will have bought into these things for a long time and they just think they can get the timing right. And they know it's a Ponzi and they're just anticipating getting out um, before everybody else. I mean, I think that actually, accounts for like 90 percent of the old coin market if not more actually i think people know the the score yeah. but they they want to play with a casino basically yeah and, and it's risky but that comes back to positioning too that that can be i can see that being fun um but you know you shouldn't have 100 percent of your allocation I mean, how do you sleep at night doing that i mean maybe it's like uh you know one percent or something but yeah, I mean, myself, I just keep completely out of it yeah. because, I mean, apart from the the risk profile of it, it seems to me as, you know, unproductive to the extent of, you know, misallocation of capital, creating larger and larger casino or Ponzi-like things. I mean, eventually that's going to cause regulators to step in. Maybe the pendulum will swing too far on the regulation side. And... It's, you know, it's not allocating capital to, I mean, you know, value, ultimately value for humanity comes from building products and services that, that, you know, improve the quality of life, improve 
um, economic well-being, and that's that's generally reflected in stock prices of public and private stocks, right? And this is none of that. I mean, it's actually sucking capital out of productive uses of capital, so probably slowing down, you know, human progress, if you like, or development of new, you know, technology. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a fair point, and a probably a good place for us to wrap things up. So, Adam, I appreciate your time today. This is a really good conversation, and uh, hopefully, we have a, a better week of trading um, going forward. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. Thank you.